Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023. Day two of phase three of the Commentary Magazine Podcast uh, with, as always, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today here, his second day as permanent co-host, AI scholar, Washington commentary columnist, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Uh, So before we go, before we get going, I'm sorry we're not leaving yet. um, I want to direct everybody's attention to our merch store at commentary.org slash merch. We got stuff for you. We have resupplied and we have added new products. We got an inexpensive commentary embroidered logo t-shirt. We have a far more expensive keep the candle burning t-shirt. And we have an even more expensive crushing morosity women's tea, plus a tote bag, plus a thumbnail magnet, plus a keep the candle burning mug. Go to commentary.org slash merch and you will be able to purchase to your heart's content and have our depressing slogans with you even when we are not speaking in your ear uh let us discuss the question of whether or not the biden administration is ignoring an ecological and environmental disaster in ohio uh the ostensible claim here is that this uh, ecological environmental disaster, the result of a train derailment uh, near East Palestine, Ohio, uh, is being uh, downpedaled or downplayed and ignored by the Biden administration because it's taking place in Trump country. Um, and uh, the story is has been gaining momentum uh, on the right for a couple of weeks. Um, Matt, I did, did some looking into this. The situation is when in the human, when in the past, uh, there are these moments when something happens and there is an there is some kind of a release of chemicals or something like that. This is something that Democrats jump on. I mean, I'm really dating myself now, but Love Canal, Superfund issues, tort lawyers immediately descend on the area. To design class action suits, you know, which are which are designed to, you know, get billions of dollars, extract billions of dollars from corporations and indeed even the government. Um, this is a new twist, uh, just like the new twist of the Republican Party going, uh, you know, um, uh, protectionist and isolationist. We talked about yesterday. The Republican Party is now claiming that the government is ignoring this e- environmental disaster. And uh, leaving people to their depredations. Uh, one thing to be said, and then we can get into a discussion. Uh, in the past two weeks, in the derailment and in the past two weeks, not a single person has died from the consequences of this derailment and the release of chemicals and the uh, contained explosion of part of the train. No one's dead. No one, uh, people are complaining that they are smelling things and coughing and things like that. Supposedly, the water is being tested, the air is being tested, and and there is no danger or threat uh, to people. But um, that is not what you would gather if you were following the news from the perspective of those who are leaning on it very heavily. Right. It's a fascinating story. I mean, typically, you know, when you hear about these sorts of environmental problems confronting communities, they are in uh, blue areas. Of course, the the water issues in uh, Flint and in, I believe, in Jackson, uh, Mississippi are some big ones. Uh, Love Canal sprang to mind, to my mind, too. I wasn't alive when it happened, but uh, I I, uh, have read about it. Um, And this is kind of unusual because, as you say, no one has died and it's it's a little bit unclear what the effects of the controlled burn will be on the population, but it's a huge political story. And I think uh, there are a few reasons for that. The first is um, the the Biden administration is very slow to act. I think that's the, the general um, uh, narrative about them. When a crisis happens, they, they delay, they, um, 
uh, they're not on their game, especially if something is coming from outside of the uh, kind of MSNBC media bubble. And this derailment happened, you know, three weeks ago. It happened on February 3rd. And it's only now that the um, administration is really taking an active stance um, with the visit uh, last week by the EPA administrator uh, and then a, um, a declaration just yesterday, John, that um, uh, Norfolk Southern, the train um, uh, line responsible, or, you know, the train line <clears throat> which owned the the very long train with only three people on it that derailed, will have to pay for the cleanup. Uh, so there's 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 that just kind of Biden's general um, you know incompetence in uh, dealing with a crisis that becomes a big issue. The other thing that happens though is with all of these disasters, the lines of control are very fuzzy, and I think one thing that's being neglected is um, Governor Dewine, Mike Dewine, who just won a huge reelection. Um, twenty five points. He won twenty five points. I think one of the highest margins of yeah, any Republican. Republican. Mm-hmm. Republican right. Yeah. yeah. The, he did not want the feds involved. <laughs> so uh, something similar happened actually with Katrina. If you talk to the Bush administration people uh, at the time, they were always complaining because Governor Blanco of uh, Louisiana and um, Mayor Nagan of New Orleans kept telling the, the Bush administration, "We don't need you. Right. We we don't need you." Um, so there, that federalism aspect, of course, can cut both ways, and I think that's important. But finally, uh, what I really wanted to talk about is um, this is just a um, another another item in the um, brief against Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who has handled uh, this uh, issue. Uh, just as badly as he's handled all the other transportation issues in his two years in office, from supply shortages to the flight delays to the Southwest disaster. Here, he's given a variety of excuses for not, uh, both for not responding quickly to the crash and not visiting East Palestine. And uh, it, it just, I think, um, shows up the uh, the media-bolstered narrative that somehow Mayor Pete is, you know, a technocrat's dream and just, you know, Mr. Competence. Uh, I I have a slightly different take on this. It does remind me of uh, Katrina, and I'll explain how, and Bush, and and um, actually the BP oil spill and Obama during Obama's tenure. And I think what the three have in common is when there are these accidents or acts of God, and as, as the effects <clears throat> linger, the public sort of starts to act as if the president is keeping some superpowers in reserve that can somehow reverse the the damage. You know, there's there's never like a real reckoning of well, what exactly can be done now? You know, um, cleanup is cleanup. Uh, uh, no one can put the chemicals back in the train. No one could have put the oil back into the rig, part of the waters of Louisiana. You know, there's like this, there's this sort of, um, I don't know, this, this sort of call to, this is, this is like, it's the ultimate sort of just do something moment mm-hmm. um, when in fact, all the mm-hmm. things that can be done are sort of small around the margins, uh, uh, you know, sort of hard to see. None of them rise to the level of the visual spectacle of the of the original thing. I think that's an important point. And, and for example, uh, I remember when uh, the BP, when the Deepwater Horizon uh, leak happened uh, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, in 2010, I guess the summer of 2010, um, this was when literally this thing that I talked about earlier, uh, the the fact that environmental disasters were a Democratic Party liberal tort bar talking point desideratum and something for which about which Republicans and conservatives had tended to roll their eyes for uh, many years, that there was a kind of <clears throat> schadenfreude in the fact uh, that Obama found himself on the wrong side of the Deepwater Horizon scandal because, as somebody I know who was involved in oil exploration said, this is was like a black swan. This was a once in a billion 
event um and you know this 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 little hole cracks uh, a mile down in a pipeline oil starts going into the gulf of mexico and um in fact once people put their minds to it they managed to pull off this absolutely astounding capping of this breach uh that if you actually sort of looked at it was like finding you know taking something the size of a penny and plugging it in a hole a mile beneath the surface uh and uh but obama like looked like a deer caught in the headlights he didn't know what to say his general his assumption and the assumption of democrats was that they were there to attack republicans for being environmentally insensitive and the schadenfreude that Oil explorers, people in these kind of businesses with, you know, complex uh, chemical things going on, they so enjoyed what had happened to Obama in 2010. And that's a little bit, they're trying to incept something a little bit like this for Biden in 2023. And you can't really blame them, in my view. This is like the tech quality. Go ahead. You just you you raise another point, which is when the, when these things happen and they're sort of statistical anomalies, um, they come to be stand-ins for supposed system-wide problems. You know, yeah. like like uh, uh, poor environmental controls or or you know uh, uh, flood design and 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 whatever else. You know, but because because yet you need to you need to connect them to something. Uh, 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 more enduring, you know. Right. It's also, you know, it, uh, it strikes me that with some of these types of disasters, Deepwater Horizon, Exxon Valdez, what's really being discussed is the effect on the environment, the natural life, um, marine life, um, fauna. Here, it, East Palestine is a little bit more like Katrina because Katrina and the disaster was uh, interpreted as um, revealing um, a neglected community, right? Uh, Black New Orleans citizens and um, who had were the most exposed when the levees broke. This is very similar because the way that this uh, disaster has been um, uh, uh, perceived and also publicized, I think, quite savvily by some political actors, is that this is about a neglected community. Uh, Appalachia, um, it's south of Youngstown, uh, Ohio, kind of on the near the border with Pennsylvania. This is a place where, of course, the Republicans have done extremely well during um, the past uh, 10 years, during the Trump era. And so uh, figures like Ohio Senator J.D. Vance, Florida Senator Marco Rubio, both of whom have kind of led the charge against Secretary Buttigieg, they're taking this as emblematic of the Democrats' neglect of uh, rural America. And um, it's the it's the converse, in some ways, of how the Democrats treated the Katrina disaster in New Orleans. Right. right. Well, and I think that's, you know, getting to the larger political point, that is why this is all happening, by which I mean, this is a a community of about fewer than 5,000 people. Nobody has died. The testing suggests that the water and the air are clean. There was a very orderly evacuation that was you know, rescinded a couple of days later, and everybody could go back to their homes. People there are worried, understandably. They're frightened, understandably. They are aware, I think, even if they're not quite aware of chapter and verse, that say after after 9-11, um, uh, federal officials said that there was no a risk or threat to people's lives if they wanted to be downtown helping the cleanup in New York City. And uh, since then, of course, <clears throat> billions of dollars have been paid out in medical claims and, and that sort of thing because... Um, uh, the air was toxic or is said to have been toxic and that, and that uh, cancers were caused and uh, breathing, uh, there were terrible breathing consequences and things like that. And people are aware that it takes a little while to ensure, determine that things like the explosion three days later, the, the, the designed explosion to, to, to cause some of the chemicals sitting there to, um, to evaporate into the air, you know, are there, will there be long-term consequences? 
from that. And, uh, and so people's concerns are uh, people there, their concerns are understandable. And, uh, and there is something really peculiar in, in Pete Buttigieg's behavior. Cause he did everything he has done is out of the playbook of the things that you shouldn't do, particularly if you are a politician with ambitions, you don't poo poo the seriousness of an individual incident, which he did by saying there are a thousand trained irrelevancy mm-hmm. or what do you want me to do? Go see every one of them is essentially what he said, which is bizarre because no, there is one trained derailment that involves the release of toxic chemicals into the air, not a thousand. So this is not about how many trained derailments are. It's how many trained derailments involve chemicals that then lead to actual, um, uh, you know, evacuations of an area. So he did that. And then, you know, I mean, he done like three or four well, things. Like yeah, but then he, he said, I was a mayor put on his booties and yeah. put on his jacket yeah. and walk through the town with the mayor yeah. and give the mayor a hug and promise all the resources <laughs> at the disposal of the federal government and then leave. Well, he won't. And it's, it's funny. Gimme. It, it be, yeah, he, first it was, you know, this thing it almost makes you think that he's scared to go there because he's worried that there's toxic chemicals in the air. Well, the mayor could beat him up. I mean, I don't if the mayor, the mayor could pa- fall on him and suffer. The mayor, him. I mean, the mayor is five times. You the don't size. want to mess with him. And I think he has yeah. really put his city on the map. But, yeah. you know, first Mayor Buttigieg, he's uh, sorry, Secretary Buttigieg said, uh, you know, this happens all the time. Just just to your like you said, Judge, this happens all the time. I can't go to every one of these things. Then he said, oh, no, no, you don't need to tell me about how communities are affected by disasters such as this. I was the mayor. I was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which is true. It's the only office he's held. The only only elective office he's held is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Finally, now he's settled on, and this is the line he just used in an interview with CNN. uh, Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go when the time is right. And that's what I don't quite understand, because, again, the derailment happened three weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the controlled burn is over. You know, people have been let back in. Uh, if not now, when? I mean, to be fair to him, this demand is interestingly irrational because you don't need the Secretary of Transportation. He deals with, like, the rail line. That already happened. Like, I guess you need the EPA administrator is who you need or whatever. You don't need him. But they zo- zoomed in on him, and he fell for it. He took the bait. He said the heartless bureaucrat thing that a villain in a movie says when something like this happens. Mr. Sensitive, Mr. 37-year-old, 39-year-old, you know, sensitive gay man with two children, da-da-da-da-da, is just a lame-ass cover his ass bureaucrat (laughs) who has terrible political instincts it turns out if he's not talking to msnbc i don't think that was predictable he was he's very graceful for the most part rhetorically over the course of his career but here the rubber met the road and he derailed well contrast right well contrast him with the epa administrator michael regan uh, someone who i have not followed uh, and i actually not quite sure how much uh, of a portfolio he has. It seems like a lot of environmental policy is centralized in the White House. But, you know, w- when the criticism start, Regan went on uh, last week. So it took him two weeks to visit. But yeah. he visited. And then he went so he, so far as to, um, I, I was kind of amused by this, he canceled his planned trip to, um, uh, to West Africa with Idris Elba and Mrs. Elba, to highlight climate change. So he takes it seriously enough to give up his movie star trip, his movie star trip. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a bureaucrat, that's yeah. a big sacrifice. Right? But the, the, the thing about uh, uh, Buttigieg is that in most administrations, no one has any idea who the transportation secretary is. <laughs> He's in trouble here because he ran for president and distinguished himself in some way. And now everyone wants him there. Right. Okay. So let's talk about who didn't show up in East Palestine on Monday, according to conservative media. That is President Biden. 
oh, President Biden goes to Kiev, but he doesn't go to he doesn't go to East Palestine. He cares more about the people of Ukraine than he cares about these Trump voters uh, in the Rust Belt, uh, you know, under this uh, terrible uh, demand. The mayor, this mayor, Mayor Conaway, said on TV, like, that was really a punch in the gut to him. Uh, very, you know, very good political performance, I would say. And I would say the populist right is making hay out of this very plain. And you do have to ask. I'm sorry, you have to ask. If a subway train that had toxic material on it derailed in the Bronx, not that there are subway trains with toxic materials on them, but if a subway oh, yes, train derailed in the, what there are, well, there's, there's, you know, <laughs> depends on yeah, the definition there's, there's of human, toxic. Yes, right. there's yeah. human, yes. but I mean, if a, if a subway train derailed in the Bronx, would Biden or Kamala Harris show up? If a, if a train carrying toxic chemicals, derailed in the you know in a in a in an area that was particularly ideologically friendly to biden and the administration would they do constituent service and 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 show up and wave the flag and i don't think i'm not saying the president would go because this is you know again we no one's died and it's a Uh, tiny little town what I think he should have gone. I mean, I th- absolutely think he should have gone. I don't. I think the 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 contrast between him his go his not having gone there and going to Ukraine is is you know something else. Is this is it's it, you know it's sort of artificial. It's not an either or choice. He should have already been to to East Palestine. Um, but Matt, what uh, do you think? Do you think he should have gone? I mean, I, I think I he needed like- to address it. I'm not sure uh, if the president of the United States needs to go to this particular site, uh, but he definitely needs to talk about it. And he needs to give the sense that the administration is in command of the situation. And this is a real weakness for the Biden administration. As I say, usually they're they're completely reactive. These things come up and it will take them weeks think or years. Think about what's happening on the border. It was, became very clear in the first month of the Biden administration that his policies were creating the humanitarian crisis on the southern border. Only now have they started to actually begin to put in policies right. which they believe will reduce the migrant inflow. So it just takes them a long time because I, I I think that uh, they have a very set agenda. He, of course, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how much time he has to actually pay attention to different things, right? And and say, oh, here's we have to improvise and ad lib. But he did need to assert some sort of command over the situation, or certainly make sure that um, uh, Regan and Buttigieg and the Secretary of the Interior and the White House Press Sec- Secretary Karine Jean Pierre dis- conveyed the appropriate amount of concern. Um, And they haven't done that. And so that has created the space, John, as you suggest, for the populist right to take this as an emblematic uh, issue and and say that the divide in the country is between people who care more about Ukraine and people who care more about East Palestine. And who is running into that breach? Donald Trump, who is planning to visit the uh, the, the town today, uh, Wednesday, February twenty second, in what will sure uh, be, I think, a, a very uh, a, a savvy move on his part, and um, and an affecting uh, performance for his for his constituents. As long as he talks about them and doesn't do half an hour on you know how they stole the election from me, but I of mean, course, it is actually it actually matters in a circumstance like that. The scent it, showing up is good politically it actually matters whether he focuses on the issue at at hand now i know i don't know who's going to cover it i don't know how it's going to be covered but um if 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 he goes if he manages to re- re- restrain himself from his let me pay tribute to noah and absentia solipsism and uh and and you know can say show me what went on here how do you feel what is it like when you cough all of that it could have us, you know, this is something could have real legs with Republican voters who are beginning to forget what they liked about him. But that, that's not his that's not in his wheelhouse just to, you know, to show empathy there. I think I, I think the the issue at hand for him that he could dwell on is look how Biden has failed you. Look how he's right. not here. Yeah. I mean, that's it's yeah, it's yeah. focusing right. on Biden. No, but it's both. Right. But I'm just saying if he talks about the stolen election. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, he might come up time. Yeah. Right. He might say something for, for Trump though. It's not so much um, what he says as the fact that he's talking, which, which communicates to his core supporters um, that he sees them, that he recognizes them. Mm -hmm. And I was in a conversation with the United States Senator last week and she uh, was saying uh, how her sibling uh, one of her siblings is a committed Trumper. I may not vote in a primary, but would definitely vote for Trump in a general election. And uh, it was simply because he heard his voice in 2015 and said, that's my guy, mm-hmm. right? So this this group of Americans, they are detached from politics. Though, as you and I understand it, they don't care. They don't like us. <laughs> they don't like the way we think about politics. Yeah. But he opens his mouth and all of a sudden, yes, that's right. right. That's what I've been saying to myself and my family yeah. a whole my whole life. Right. And so that's all he needs to do. And I don't know. That's I, all I think, he does. <laughs> you know? See, I, I think a moment like this has has a, a reach out potential. Because let's assume that people like that would be, you know, would would be inclined to go for Trump, whatever the circumstances in 2024. Question is, are there these moments when he can do things to remind the Republicans who didn't really like him in 2016, decided that they liked him during the course of his presidency, and now are seem to be reverting to the we need to move on from him for whatever reason. He's got to get some of those back. Sure. More than some. And moments like this, if you can actually exploit them and jump on them and get a jump on your rivals and all of that, have that potential. It's early. It's a year until anybody votes and all of that. So don't don't get me wrong. Like, I don't think any of this is 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 determinative. But I I, I think that pulling back to 30,000 feet now and looking at this thing, Biden's in Kiev and the certain response of a a whole branch of people on the right is to say, why is he there and not in East, East Palestine? Uh, If that argument has legs, if it turns out to be a sort of a general talking point or some version of it continues to be a general talking point, it'll be, why is he doing this when he could be doing that? Why is he focusing on, on Ukraine when he could be focusing on the border? Why is he focusing on Ukraine when he could be focusing on something else? Um, if that dynamic hits, it will have the effect of accelerating this thing that we're afraid of here, which is this onrush toward uh, sort of isolationism in part situationally. Like it's not there are some people who are genuinely ideologically isolationist or who are, who are claiming to be interventionist in the form of wanting us to be more confrontational toward China. But I think that's a red herring and a dodge those are there are those people but if if you start saying look looking outward outside the united states to the role the united states plays uh, in the world is um is an act of neglect of the serious problems we have here at home and the republican party really embraces that um i think that would be i believe it would be calamitous and i assume actually Politically, in the long run, it would be calamitous. I can't say that it would be calamitous in 2023 and 2024 because it all depends on how Biden performs and whether that indictment like, can be connected to larger ideas of his incompetence and his out-of-touchness and all of that. Um, Abe, uh, I think it is time for you to uh, dilate a bit on the uh, on the prophetic quality of one of your favorite novelists. Well, this is this is the mo- the 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 derailment and the the spill is is uh, the the most robust example of um, Don DeLillo's prophetic talents. Uh, right specifically uh in his his novel white noise which also very coincidentally was only released as a movie december month two months ago yeah yeah um focuses on um a train derailment in which toxic chemicals in ohio you know in a small town in ohio in which toxic chemicals are are unleashed uh in the atmosphere and the whole town has to evacuate 
and the main character is uh, uh, afraid of of the of the long term effects of the chemicals uh, on him. Uh, funnily enough, in the, in the book, he didn't even name a town, but the but the movie the movie nailed it down. So then so then the real world could could know how to how to respond and, and where to make it happen. Yeah, in the New York Times story yesterday, I think uh, there is a person who lives in the town who then said that he had been an extra. <laughs> When they filmed this, uh, Noah right. Baumbach, the writer-director, yeah. filmed the movie uh, in Ohio. It's it's in the the novel, the section of the novel, White Noise, that that deals with this is called the Airborne Toxic Event. Yeah, and that's all we know about it because part of the theme of the book is that no one ever, no one ever really knows anything, including the authorities who are who are directing everybody into the evacuation. And, uh, and so, uh, but it is, it is really, a, 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 I, I am not uh, as much of an admirer of Delillo's as, 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 as Abe is, and I'm not that much of a fan of white noise, but this is a very eerie, it's a little a genuinely uh, eerie. It's yeah. like the Simpsons predicting the Trump presidency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have the pop culture yeah. antecedents for real life events. Just one question on Delillo, uh, not having actually read him, I confess, Abe, is white noise the place to start or it's under underworld is also very clean, but it's longer. Oh, I I'd start. I wouldn't start with underworld cause you'll, it, cause it's, it's 800 yeah. plus pages and right. in the middle, it, it really slags. So white noise is what you would recommend. Sure. Sure. Especially yeah, I now. Go with the names myself, but I like the names. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I find white noise annoying cause it's just a, in my view, it, it is a satirical, it's the satirical, you know, America's obsessed with brand name right. items. Consumer, anti-consumerist. Yeah, very yeah. anti-consumerist. And and the names, which is essentially a spy thriller, oh, okay. kind of a CIA spy thriller, is um is pretty exciting. And uh, but uh, anyway, I, I I speak as somebody who doesn't really like Delillo, and Abe Abe is yeah. really much more of the expert here. So well, you know, for, forget Buttigieg. They should they should send Delillo down there. Yeah, to well, figure out what happens. Buttigieg next. sounds like he could come out of a Don DeLillo yeah, novel. Yeah. Has probably read several of them in Portuguese. Yes, in, yes, exactly. Or in any of the other yes. six languages he yes. speaks. Maybe he and maybe he and uh, Chaston have read it to each other, or read it to the read it to the children while they're clearly know, that's while, what while he's, they're avoiding while he's avoiding doing his job. That's what he's doing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Rather than attend to these crises, yeah, he's brushing exactly. up on his finish. Yeah. Right. Well, you know. The Biden administration may have an HR problem here with Pete Buttigieg, and uh, maybe what the Biden administration needs is Bambi, because, you know, when running an enterprise, employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. You know, anything can happen. People get into fights or they don't show up in East Palestine, Ohio. So, you know, one way of dealing with it is to talk to Bambi where you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month, available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly, team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers can easily cost eighty grand a year, and the HR Managers and government costs easily twice that, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com, Bambi.com. Type in Commentary Magazine. So Donald Trump is uh, making moves like a, a presidential candidate because he is a declared presidential candidate. We have one. We now have a third declared presidential candidate in the race mm-hmm. for president. I will be excited to inform almost everybody in who doesn't uh, who doesn't know this that you have no idea who the person is who is declared for president. <laughs> That's assuming uh, a he, lot, John. He, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there. If you watch Fox News in the last two years. You have seen this new candidate multiple yes. times. So uh, his name is Vivek Ramaswamy. He is 37 or 38 years old, a Harvard graduate, a guy who started some kind of a, it's a pharmaceutical uh, company, pharmaceutical company, uh, 
and then uh, sold it because he published a book or got, got out of it because he published a book called Woke Inc. in 2020 and he wanted to promote it. Now he has some kind of an investment fund that uh, seed money for which came uh, largely, I think, from Peter Thiel, um, whose uh, political involvements and uh, intellectual involvements in the United States have had been so uh, effective, um, Blake Masters and others, uh, and uh, and uh, Ramaswamy, rather than, say, running for Congress or running for mayor somewhere of, say, South Bend, Indiana, or even for senator like J.D. Vance, who ran for senator after having published a best-selling book, is now running for president. Um, and if you listen to him or read his uh, his material to describe this guy as having a head swelled to the size of the Chinese balloon might be an understatement. So, um, uh, yes, I'm making fun of him. And I will say this plainly, which is if the RNC or if the people who are planning the debates in 2023 and 2024 cannot contrive a way to keep people like Vivek Ramaswamy out of the president off the presidential debate stage the whole idea that political parties have any power to manage their own destinies will have been now conclusively proved false but so, that's uh, yeah. uh, that sort of cut, cuts both ways in the sense that his potential supporters would support him because they detest a system in which a party could keep uh, uh, someone away from the debate stage just because he doesn't uh, he doesn't meet your 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 extraordinary expectations. If you're so, a Democrat, are you happy that that uh, that Marianne Williamson was in the debates and in 2020? I mean, I'm just she saying she had like, a lot of good lines. Well, she had a couple. <laughs> she had one good debate. Let's let's say it was entertaining. She yeah. added some entertainment factor. To I the- can give I can give you the contrarian take on Ramaswamy. OK, you want to hear it? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things about Vivek Ramaswamy, um, who is definitely running for president from the Tucker Carlson chair of uh, of woke studies. Um, first, he can self-fund. He's got a lot of money. I was looking into this for uh, a piece I was writing recently, and um, money is going to matter in this in this primary, uh, especially when there's a lot of pressure on the candidates who are only polling in single digits to drop out ahead of the Iowa caucus. But if you can self-fund, which Ramaswamy and really only Glenn Youngkin can, if Youngkin decides to get in the race, you don't need to drop out. So you can continue to go. The second thing is, he um he's a great TED talker. I don't think he has a TED talk. It's probably too woke for him. But I have seen him on panels and in fora and before live audiences, and he has uh the the types of people who compose this these audiences eating out of the palm of his hand. He is very uh succinct, direct, he's got great hand gestures. <laughs> And and he just kind of owns the panel stage. He gets a gold medal for paneling. But by the way, yeah, I also will say one positive thing about him, which is I, I quite liked his book, Woke Inc. I didn't read yeah. the second book, but it's it's a very it's a right. very good succinct summary of the theme that corporations are have been have been captured ideologically by people who do not wish our capitalist system, our democratic, who do not wish our system well. Um, and uh, it came out three years ago, and it's it's pretty good. It's not great. It's pretty good. So I am, I am not making fun of him on the grounds that he doesn't have qualities that are impressive and, and that right. he is not. But um, I know Donald Trump tells us different that the presidency is not an entry level position in politics, but the presidency is not an entry level position in politics. And if you want, and it is preposterous for a human being who, you know, is 37 years old and has never run for office before to waste our time. I know, but we're talking about the Republican Party. Which uh, in 2012 had uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Herman Cain uh, vault at one point to lead the race, right? Uh, 
in 2016, not only did the eventual nominee be Donald Trump, uh, we also had Dr. Ben Carson. So it's not like it's unusual to have a kind of a person that no one would consider <laughs> a serious right. presidential material to run for the Republican nomination. And Ramaswamy, I think, understands that, which is why he's decided to go straight to the top. I, like you, kind of thought, you know, he is from Ohio. He's close to J.D. Vance and to Peter Thiel. I assume run for against Sherrod Brown. Exactly. I would assume that would be his play. Oh, no, I was wrong. (laughs) He's going right to the Oval Office. And I think that some of his communication skills will actually mean that he will stand out. He will have a moment at one of our endless Republican debates that we're getting ready for. I think the issue with him is the more you closely you, you listen to Vivek Ramaswamy, some of his ideas are are a little bit uh, weird. Um, he said, he apparently in his latest book, A Nation of Victims, uh, he says that... Um, uh, he says that if we push our, so if we decouple from China uh, and we have our own domestic semiconductor industry, this I'm taking this from uh, Teddy Kupfer's very good review of the book and na- the new issue of National Review. Uh, if we have our own semiconductor industry, we don't, we'll not need to defend Taiwan. So we can just, don't worry about that. You're on your own, Taiwan. Um, he also wants to I- increase the hi- inheritance taxes, the death tax. He wants to increase it heavily. Um, And then he has a line, according to Kupfer, where he says that um, actually America should aspire to be ancient Greece after the Roman conquest, (laughs) which, you know, I I can't really accept that. If he had said we should be like ancient Greece prior to the Roman conquest, all right. But no, for him, it's we should emulate Greece after being conquered by Rome. So I don't I don't know how that analogy will fly with um, Republican primary voters. And then in his op-ed for the Wall Street Journal today, why I'm running for president, he talks about, um, he he acknowledges, John, your point. He he writes, it may seem presumptuous for a 37-year-old political outsider to pursue the highest office in land, but I am running on a vision for our nation, one that revives merit in every sphere of American life. Now that I think is a pretty good argument and you need to have a vision. That's important. But then he gets into stuff about how um, there's like a deep spiritual hunger in America and there's something missing. And apparently the only way to fill this hunger is to vote for Vivek Ramaswamy for president. And I think that is a a bridge too far. Um, I I like the fact that he did his uh, his thesis at Harvard on the uh, threat of human animal hybrids. Well, I mean, uh, which, you know, granted, I think human animal hybrids are a very, very bad idea. Yeah. I didn't really, this just shows me the quality of a Harvard education that this is actually could be a topic of a senior thesis. Um, but it, it, it demonstrates, I, 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 I kid, but um, it, it demonstrates an interest in, in, in weirdness that is a feature of this kind of entrepreneur and and we shouldn't take that lightly because it means that his brain goes to unusual places by the way one thing and abe maybe you can speak about this a little bit there is this idea in the uh people who are trying very hard to figure out how we should be tough on china without being tough on russia or being tough on china whatever that um what we need is for Taiwan. I'm t- trying to remember where I read this the other day. Taiwan needs to bury uh, bombs under its semiconductor factories throughout Taiwan and tell the Chinese that if they set one foot on Taiwanese soil, they will detonate the semiconductor factories and blow them up. And therefore, there's no reason for China to go into and if taiwan does not put the bombs under the semiconductor factories then we really should maybe think twice about helping them because it means they're not serious about retarding uh, a chinese invasion i only bring this up and again i can't remember where i read it but it was somewhere re- was relatively credible in the world of sort of natcon ism um that scratch these guys and they go to very strange places well i I mean regarding strange places and you know uh 
and strange preoccupations of certain types of entrepreneurs, even forgetting the, the, the recent bizarreness of the Republican Party, we are at a point in our politics where eccentricities, even cognitive deficiencies are not disqualifying. So I, I think, you know, uh, as, as colorful as any candidate may be who, who comes down the pike, I, I think it's still hard to realize how much maybe we shouldn't dismiss yeah. their their potential. It's funny when um, Michael Lewis wrote his book on the 96 campaign, you know, he was so bored by the professionals that he fixated on this guy, Maury Taylor, who I think was a tire salesman. And in retrospect, since this, the theme of this episode is books that turn out to be prophetic, <laughs> our, na- our national politics, as Abe suggests, is all Maury Taylor's, right? It's the professionals, the, the, the ones who crowd up uh, these primaries in the past. They don't actually get the attention. They don't have the juice. Uh, it's, it's the kind of eccentrics, uh, and the businessmen or the celebrities uh, who uh, kind of come to the fore, and so that's why I'm not. Uh, I, that's not. No, I'm not totally dismissing Ramaswamy. The other, the one other reason I've left out is talking to some po- uh, politicos. He's doing the work. I mean, he's a very good networker, from what I understand, and so he is actually speaking to you know county chairs. And I so President Ramaswamy takes <laughs> yeah, office just... on January 20th, uh, 2025. Yeah, don't put words in my mouth. Okay, I'm not. I'm not but uh, look, granted, I sound really snotty and all of that. And of course, anyone can run for president and, you know, who dares wins and all of that. But I'm, I'm, um, I have respect for people who take, who believe and take seriously the things that they want to do and uh, the sort of Charles Foster Kane, I think it would be fun to be president for a while. Shtick just sits very heavily on me. Like, you know, understandably. Right. Okay. So, so, uh, and I think the, the counter to your Maury Taylor, Herman Kane, uh, uh, Ben Carson Carson, uh, line is that um, they don't win. Donald Trump was one of the most famous people in America for three decades, and nobody in the world had heard of Herman Cain. Uh, and mo- I mean, people had heard of Ben Carson if you were a certain, t- you know, when he a TV movie was made about his life, but he wasn't exactly world famous. And so Trump leveraged something that had been in the works in American politics for a century, was the guy who used popular culture to make him a political force almost exclusively in popular culture, often in places that we didn't even know there was popular culture, right. this, you know, proletarian media, uh, the World Wrestling Federation and weird talk radio channels. National and Choir. QAnon and yeah. yeah, and and National Choir and like weird right art bell and people like that, that we were that, you know, no one was paying the slightest attention to without realizing that there were like 10 million people living in that space that could propel somebody's presidential candidacy. Um, But I mean, none of these other guys had anything like that. And the Democrats who have also had weird candidates in their, in their fields have never had, you know, have never had anybody like that. So you get this kind of, it's almost like it's fun to focus on the freak show aspect, like the person who comes out of nowhere and isn't just a telegenic, fakey politician. You understand there's all these also rands that that go into presidential politics, people who've been dreaming about being president since they were nine years old and became student body president. And then they went and they went to college and they did this. They went to law school, not intending to be a lawyer because they wanted to go into politics and they do this and then they do that. And by the time they come out of the meat grinder, they're Kamala Harris. Yeah. At best. I mean, I mean, at best in the sense that, you know, but Kamala Harris is an extraordinarily uninteresting person, except for her, you know, except for the flavoring of her ethnic and 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 racial background. Otherwise, she wouldn't be a dog catcher, let alone a senator or a vice president. And so you do have that that quality, which is one of the problems for Vivek Ramaswamy, by the way, which is if you're 
let's say you want an Indian American. Well, you got you got you got the former governor of South Carolina and UN ambassador in in the race as as an as an Indian American. Not that people are like clamoring for that. And Indian Americans are apparently seventy percent Democratic voters anyway. So I'm not sure that that's a, a particularly great. Uh, they're they're amazing people. They're an amazing ethnic group in the United States. Extraordinarily successful, but they are not Republican. Um, and if you want, you know, you know, a successful entrepreneur, you have, or you know, businessman, you have Yunkin if he runs. And if you have, and and if you want someone who's anti woke, you have the governor of Florida who is actually spent three years making anti woke moves and didn't just write a book about it but and, and then i think the larger issue is and why want why would you want any of those people when you have donald trump who created all of it right, right. i mean and who can and, and, and who held one of the most interesting ra- moments of the trump presidency were these massive rallies that trump held with modi one was yeah. in one was in texas and then i think he had another one in india so yeah. there's a for the sector of the Indian American vote that leans Republican, you can't really beat Trump. (laughs) Abe is smiling because I find it necessary to do this for this contingent of our listeners. When Matt says he appeared with Modi, he is not referring to the comedian Modi Rosenfeld, (laughs) but rather to Narendra Modi, the, um, well, that would prime be minister. funny too. Wait, yeah. <laughs> what is his title? Is he prime minister? I can't remember what his title is in India. Anyway, the yeah. the, the leader, leader of India, it, the essentially yeah. now the autocrat of India. <laughs> yeah, the autocrat yeah. of India. Yeah, but um, yeah, Modi Rosenfeld, whose routine the other day was just to give you a sense of how the world is going. Russia is being held off by a Jewish comedian, <laughs> which is one of his many great lines. Modi has appeared uh, at two commentary roasts. Anyway, that's why uh, Abe here on our he's, Zoom. He's probably appeared with Trump, too. It, I don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. Anyway, he is he is a brilliant comedian. Just look at M-O-D-I. Look him up on on uh, anywhere. He is he is screamingly funny. OK, uh, let us move on to other issues in the presidential race. Matt. You have a piece coming out at some point today, I maybe think in the next in the 24 Post, hours. Yes, in the Washington Post. On Tim Post. Scott, uh, yeah. the other potential candidate from South Carolina. That's right. Yeah, Senator Tim Scott. He's visiting Iowa uh, today uh, and tomorrow. And I wrote a piece for the Washington Post, again, saying, um, you know, don't uh, count him out. Um, I think that uh, Senator Scott's poised uh, to do. Uh, very well, or at least exceed expectations, um, for a few reasons. The first is, uh, again, he has uh, proven fundraising skills, and he has $20 million cash on hand, thanks to his support from billionaire Larry Ellison. And that will count, again, as the field narrows ahead of Iowa. Um, another reason is, uh, he, he he's a uh, someone whose political identity was formed prior to and separate from the rise of Trump. So mm-hmm. as I was saying, all of these characters we're talking about in some ways are creations of Donald Trump or reflections of him or or antitheses to him. Uh, that's not the case with Tim Scott. You know, um, he, he was uh, a congressman. Uh, then he was appointed in 2013 by Nikki Haley, who's already declared in the race. Uh, he won his full. Uh, he won a special election in fourteen, and then a full term in sixteen when Trump appeared on the stage. But the the truth is, um, unlike Haley, unlike Mike Pence, unlike Mike Pompeo, uh, his status in the party does not depend on Trump in any way. He never worked for Trump. He kind of stayed in his own lane uh, during the Trump year. Trump years. And that might count for something if people truly are looking for an alternative to Trump or to DeSantis, if either of those candidates has flaws. Uh, the final uh, reason is he's uh, Tim Scott is extremely likable. It, it's I, I was asking a bunch of congressmen, you know, what do you think of Tim Scott? Both parties. They all love him. It's hard to find someone who doesn't. And it, it, what's interesting, and uh, data, uh, David Byler of the Washington Post pointed this out the other week, is that you know he doesn't have very high name ID now. But within the universe of people who do know who Tim Scott is, 
he has stratospheric favorability rate, yeah. which means he has room for growth, unlike many other candidates, right? Haley and Pence are already pretty well known and they pretty they have pretty high unfavorable mm-hmm. ratings. So they don't have much room. Tim Scott has a lot of room. And for these reasons, I, I think he definitely bears watching uh, in the months ahead. Okay, so there are a couple of uh, strikes against Tim Scott. Uh, one of them is personal, and the other is goes to the question of how the Republican Party is going to define itself. Personally, he is uh, 58 years old and has never been married. We have had one bachelor president in our entire history. Um, that was uh, James Buchanan. So that's really not a <laughs> that is not a model you want to emulate in any possible way. The James Buchanan presidency. Um, uh, but it is a, it is a liability running for president to, uh, be a bachelor and to not have family there with you in some fashion. And it could be a very serious liability since it's almost never been tested, uh, in our time. Uh, you know, we don't know what the effect net effect will be. That's number one. Number two, his pre-Trump definition and Haley's pre-Trump definition speak to a message that the Republican Party wants to deliver and did want to deliver that it may not want to deliver anymore and that voters may not want, which is, this is a great country. This is a land of opportunity. I am a model for the way in which America has changed. I'm Nikki Haley. I'm br- I have brown skin. I'm from an immigrant uh, Indian family. Here I am, governor of South Carolina, UN ambassador running for president. What a great country this is. Tim Scott, I'm a son of a single mother. I grew up in housing projects. I became a successful businessman. I went into I be, went into local politics. I became a sen- I became a congressman. I became a senator. Uh what a great country this is. A place where you can rise from humble origins and beginnings and 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 if you work hard and play by the rule and all of this the the future is yours is that message right a message that republican voters actually want to hear in 2024 or it, what they want to hear is this country stinks <laughs> biden <laughs> is destroyed you know, biden's destroyed right. it the uniparty has destroyed it everything right. is destroying it and all we need to do now is you know pull up the ladders and make sure and hunker down and build our own semiconductor industry and blow up Taiwan's semiconductor factories and try to kind of stumble forward right. in, in a perpetual culture war. And well, I, 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 I don't know the it's, answer. But it's, no, it's, it's interesting because they don't want to hear it, it, this country stinks because it's racist. That's not their, that's not what they're into. They want to hear this country stinks because of the establishment. Or because of liberalism or because, or because of, right. of liberalism. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the most important words in life are compared to what? And um, right now, everyone is of the mind in the Republican Party that that's what Republican primary voters want to hear. They want the kind of the grimacing culture warrior. And so that's why you have the two front runners in the race at the moment are former President Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, who both say uh, this country's in dire straits. Um, and uh, either in the person of Trump will deliver us or uh, uh, DeSantis' war on woke will do the same. You do have to wonder, though, in the course of this long primary that's ahead of us, whether voters say, uh, well, maybe this really charming guy who has a positive message, um, maybe we should give him a look, too, because he's going to impress at the debates. He's going to impress in one-on-ones. I mean, there's no, you know, we know that. That's Tim Scott. I think his big problem, his big challenge is getting beyond biography. And as part of my piece, I went back and I looked at Barack Obama's announcement address in Springfield, Illinois in February 2007. And someone had pointed this out to me and I hadn't really thought of it, but I went and checked. He never once mentioned his race. He never once mentioned his biography. Now, people already knew that. He had already written two books about who he was and uh, his story. But for the actual announcement and for much of the campaign until he was really forced to confront these issues with this speech on Jeremiah Wright in the the spring of 08, 
he was talking more about his arguments for where he wanted to take the country than himself, at least in these planned set speeches. And I do think that for Senator Scott, he would have to do that. Um, Trump, you know what he wants to do. DeSantis, you know what he wants to do. Vivek Ramaswamy, we know what he wants to do. He wants to fill that hole uh, in the American soul. Um, what does Tim Scott want to do? Um, I, I think he needs to be a little bit clear and he needs to find an issue that goes beyond his work on police reform, which which hasn't really gone anywhere, and on um, at the 2017 tax bill, which is kind of more in the rear view mirror. Right. Um, if he does that, though, I, again, I, 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 uh, I certainly expect him to exceed expectations. Okay, so one other, I think, important point in relation to what you said about DeSantis and Trump is that DeSantis does have half of a positive message that Trump does not have. Because DeSantis' positive message is, uh, as the country was getting less free, I made Florida more free. Right. I, you know, I did not allow the authoritarianism, the authoritarian temptation of the COVID regime to uh, sway me. And uh, and while other governors seize these powers in order to accrete power for themselves, I wanted to make sure that Floridians could live as free a life as was possible. That is very positive. Trump, as of this moment, has literally no positive message. His message is the election was stolen from me. America, Biden stinks. America stinks. Everything stinks. Let me get back into power because at least when I was in power, things stunk less. Um, and that, as I say, like, we we don't know where all this is going to end up. This is not supposedly the way you're supposed to run for president. But uh, Trump upend, uh, upends things and could upend things, particularly if we go into the winter of 2024 in a recession, things aren't looking good in Ukraine. I, there are like, there are three or four different things that could effectively endorse Trump's general emotional predisposition and make him more attractive to voters as a kind of prophetic voice or something like that. But, but um, uh, I think, I think your, your, your case for Tim Scott is a really good one. Um, uh, and, but, you know, people do grade him on a bit of a curve because he is a, he is a, you know, he is a sort of swan. He's like a, you know, he's the only black senator, Republican senator. Uh, I think he's the first black Republican. I mean, no, Edward Brooke was a senator many, many decades ago. But, um, uh, you know, this is a very, you know, he's a he's a rare creature and and therefore is, you know, is given is given um, points for his special qualities that will almost immediately, I think, be discounted by Republican voters. In other words, they might like that he's a number of people might like that he's black or might like that he's, you know, got this personal story and all of that. But at some point you just sort of like take that in and, and move on. The question yeah, is, yeah, I mean, you have to yeah. capitalize on it. The, uh, the black yeah. candidate has led briefly in, in each, each of the race, last yeah. two of contested primary Republican primaries. Yeah. So that's another reason that I expect him to have a moment and the question for for Senator Scott will be, can he capitalize on it by, by, by demonstrating that it's not just his biography that people find compelling or his a very good political skills, um, but that he has an actual argument for, for why he ought to be president, considering all the other challenges you mentioned, um, yeah. the, his singledom um, and such. Uh, but again, I, I think he has a, a, he has a national future and um, people shouldn't dismiss him. Yeah, I just want to say on that on that very question. I mean, I, I've gotten the sense right wing populists often sort of hunger for an ethnic mi minority candidate because then they could it it it, it allows them to to demonstrate that no, we're, what we're about is not white yeah. supremacy. No, I think a lot of Republican voters like have a built in desire to pr somehow prove they're not racist. Right. Yeah, although by backing yeah. a black candidate. Although I think the anti-woke stuff makes the, oh, you think I'm just going to vote for somebody? Oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not that person anymore. Like, right. I'm not standing here trying to prove to you that except, I, okay. But, but except uh, people like Tim Scott, um, 
and like Nikki Haley, they draw fire from the woke crowd. Well, that's the, what I wanted. And, to and bring so, up. so, so they, so they become yeah. allied to, right. to you know, uh, uh, white populists on this. On well, this that's question. what I want to bring up. So, if Tim Scott gains purchase, if he gains purchase, if you know, in in September or October or something right. like that, the Continetti scenario. Yeah, he's polling over ten percent, or he's like yeah. in the mix. There are three or four people in the mix, and he's sort of in the mix. Um horrible things i, I mean know. we see this in nikki horrible things are going to be said about him right uh by joy by by joy reed by you know sharpton by i i don't know who but horrible you know he's a betrayer of his people and then you know and then you're going to get this weird chapo trap house leftist racism stuff that will start you know leftist anti-PC stuff that will start pouring on his head, including, you know, intimations about why he's single and stuff like that. And the the the, the garbage that could be dumped on him could have, a, as you say, have a bizarrely salutary effect. Yeah. I mean, I think he had, he'd have to demonstrate what, uh, you know, the late Reagan age, John Sears called negative capability, which is you can't show that the attacks are getting to you. Right. Of course, that's the very opposite of former president trump <laughs> he has positive yeah. he's always responding to the attacks but i think senator scott would have to do that and he and i think this is a someone point uh, uh another uh senator pointed this out to me um which is that you know it's a tricky position to be in because obviously your your life story is an asset it's your biography really compels people to listen to you but um if you just make it all about your identity, Republican voters probably aren't going to stay with you all that long. So there's something interesting with what Nikki Haley is doing right now, which is she's like playing up the gender card. And uh, I think it's working for her now because it's gaining her attention and um, people seem to be devoting a lot more attention to her than I was expecting, at least at the outset. But, you know, how does that wear over time. And so this is why I do think it's very important, not only for Senator Scott to not respond to a lot of the attacks, to keep his positive mental attitude, which he certainly has, but also to have a, a, a big argument about, okay, we're here's what we're going to do if I'm uh, in the position of the presidency. He might not be in that position, but he needs to be able to say, here's what I want to do. And it won't just be, well, we need to expand the 2017 tax bill and the yeah. opportunity zones and the child yeah. tax credit. It needs to be a little bit something more than that, I think. Uh, Christine Rosen will be back tomorrow. We will have our full compliment here at phase three of the commentary podcast. So until then, for Abe and Matt, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>